All right, well, <clears throat> as you find your way back to your seats, I'd like to introduce our, uh, our preacher this morning. This is Mark Wellman. Mark is with us. He's been, he was with us last week. He's here today. He'll be here next week as Pastor Tony is uh, in India. Uh, Mark has been a part of the Presbytery for some time, and so we're glad that he's here. And uh, he will be reading the scripture that our teaching is based on this morning. Our, our scripture reading is Psalm 44. Before I read that, I just want to remind you guys all of about, I guess, need this. About five years ago, there was an advertisement that came out, put, by, put out by the Apple Computer Company for their the iPhone 3. And it, it coined a phrase that has since become part of our world. There's an app for that. Remember that? And it kind of pre, prefigured or prophesied a day that would come when when young people would no longer would use their phones for absolutely everything you could think of except for making phone calls. And they would be able to communicate with everybody through those phones except for their parents when their parents called them because they don't they don't receive phone calls. So but in, in the same way as the phone has become something much more diverse than we originally thought it could be, the book of Psalms is an incredibly rich and diverse book. And one of the things you see, you know, oftentimes I think if, if you just look at the passages we pick out for worship services and places like that, you think of the book of Psalms as a collection of praise songs that we might sing. But actually, the book of Psalms offers us the reflections and the prayers and the thoughts of people who are going through a whole variety of different experiences. So no matter what you're going through today, I guess what we could say is there's a psalm for that. You know, whether you're full of gratitude and praise today, there's psalms for that. But if you're full of fear and anxiety, there's psalms for that. If you feel like God has answered your prayers and you just want to thank him for his faithfulness, there's psalms for that. But if you're wondering if God's even listening, there's psalms for that. And there's psalms for you when you feel God's presence and you feel God's blessing in your life. There's psalms that are appropriate to read and reflect back to God when you feel God's absence and you're wondering where he is in your life. There's psalms for every circumstance. One of the things I want to offer to you is to take what I call the 10 Psalm Challenge. If you just open the book of Psalms to any place and read about 10 or 15 Psalms, you'll find one that correlates with your emotional and spiritual state at that moment, whatever it might be. There's psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of gratitude, psalms of petitions. There's something for you. And in, in fact... There's an app for that too. Bible Gateway offers this amazing little application on your, on your phone that you can, that you can download. And then if you don't even feel like reading the Psalms, what I do sometimes is I just have the Bible played to me or read to me and just listen to what the Word of God says. So there's amazing ways you can use your phones. There's amazing ways in this day and age that, uh, that you can use your phones to understand the richness of God's revelation. Today we're going to look at one of those psalms that perhaps you haven't seen before or really noticed. It's Psalm 44, and it's a psalm that the psalmist writes out of his desperation and out of wondering where God is and what God is doing. Psalm 44. 
O God, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. For not by our own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who have hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us a taunt to our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations and a laughingstock among the people. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would show us, as we look at your word today, how you meet us even in our desperation, and how you're present even when we can't sense you, and how you're working even when you're not working the way we want you to. Give us eyes to see, and give us hearts that are open to what your word would teach us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know in a church like this, many of you are, are pretty seasoned, pretty well educated in the faith, and probably a lot of you have read books on prayer. You've, you've uh, maybe uh, gone to seminars on prayer or heard sermons on prayer. And one of the pieces of advice that often we give when we teach those sermons or we we read those books is you got to pray the scriptures you know find scriptures that comport with the desire of your heart and reflect those back to god share those back with god 
And, you know, it, it, that, that's good advice because it helps us align our minds and align our hearts and align our prayers with the will of God. And so today, though, I want to want to add a scripture that perhaps you've never prayed to God before, or perhaps you wouldn't dare to pray to God, and it is this one, Psalm 44, 33. Awake, O God, why are you sleeping? Sometimes we've got to tell God to wake up. You know, as we go through life, sometimes life doesn't go the way that we wanted it to do. When we we make our plans, we have good intentions, we say our prayers, and we trust that God is going to enable the the plans of our heart to succeed. He, we trust that God is going to enable our best intentions to realize themselves, and then things just don't work out. And we pray for God to work things out with our family, and things don't work out. We pray for God to work things out with our careers, and things don't work out. We pray for God to work things out, perhaps with our health or with the health of a loved one, and it seems that God is absent. It seems that our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. And you wonder, what should I do with that? What does that mean? Or what is what is God doing in this circumstance? And actually, if you take the time to read the Psalms for yourself, one of the things that you'll discover is a lot of the prayers in the Psalms are these prayers of disorientation, where the psalmist is looking up to God and saying, God, where are you? Why are, why are you allowing this to happen? Why haven't you answered this prayer? Why are you letting your people suffer like this? In fact, it's a common theme in the Bible. If we go to the next slide, perhaps we see a few of those. Uh, Psalm 13.1, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist is praying and he's saying, God, why have you forgotten me? Are you going to keep forgetting me? You know, I've been waiting for you and you haven't showed up. Go to the next slide. There's a few more. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? Have you ever felt like that as you looked at your life, looked at things that are happening in your life, wondered why God is allowing these things to happen? Or Psalm 88. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why are you hiding your face from me. So the good news there is when you feel that way, if you feel that way even today, perhaps, what it means is you're not the first one to feel that way. And even the people who were so close to God that they could on God's behalf write the scriptures, had their days, had their moments, had their prayers, when they really had to wonder if God was listening, if God was active, if God heard, and if God God understood. And this is confusing to us, though. You know, perhaps thousands of years ago people could endure this, but for modern Americans, we don't really want a God who doesn't work on our terms. You know, I figured it out. I think what we really want, what I really want, I'll speak for myself, what I really want is a God who works kind of like the McDonald's drive through Now, as I look at you guys, it doesn't look like many of you guys patronize McDonald's, but I do. So let me tell you how the McDonald's drive through works. You go to the first stop, and there's an inter intercom there and a menu, and so you say, you say into the intercom, I'll have a Big Mac, a supersized fries, a, a large shake, and, uh, and a Diet Coke. 
And, and they say, okay, that'll be 529. You go to the next stop and you pay your money and you get a receipt for it. And then you go to a third window and they give you exactly what you ordered and what you paid for. And then before you pull out of the parking lot, of course, you inspect your order and make sure you got what you want. And about 99% of the time, you get exactly what you want. The other 1% of the time, you march in and demand to see the manager, and they make it right and give you an extra bag of fries to, to make up for the inconvenience. And, you know, I think we want God to be that way. At least I would like it if I could just make my order to God, do my good deeds on behalf of God, and then get exactly what I wanted as a result. Wouldn't that be convenient if God worked that way? But that is not exactly how God works. You know, we can't pay for what we really need, and we want something a little better than fries and a Big Mac anyways. And God doesn't always give us things on our timetable and according to our will. In fact, a lot of times, if you walk with God and as you walk with God, you'll discover that he is working on a completely different timetable. And part of following him, part of trusting him, part of obeying him is accepting that. But along the way, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's confusing. But to understand that and to embrace that and accept that about God is part of what it means to have a relationship with God. You know, all of us have people in our life who we're afraid of. And we might ask them for something, say a boss at work, and you might make a request of your boss. But then if it doesn't happen in the time that you think it should, you're afraid to ask them again, right? You're afraid to bring up the subject again because you don't want to make them angry. And so you just let things go. But one of the things that's remarkable about the Psalms is here in Psalm 44, he's willing to say to God, wake up, God, why are you sleeping? Get up and help your people. We need your help here. He has that kind of a relationship with God, the ability to approach God and say, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? How long am I going to deal with this, O Lord? He has that kind of intimacy with God. Perhaps certainly he fears God, but he's not so afraid of God that he can't bring his complaints to him. Do you have that kind of a relationship with God? Do you have that kind of an openness and you see God as someone who's approachable at that level? That's what the psalmist had. That's why he's willing to be this honest. And also, you know, we have people in our world who we have relationships with, but we have to be cordial to them. Perhaps people you see every day, neighbors, friends, uh, co-workers, and, you know, you go into the office every day and they say, good morning, how are you doing? And you might have just buried your cat the night before. You might be immediately struggling with a case of dysentery, and you're going to say, I'm fine, and you're going to keep walking, right? Because there's some people who you just don't want to share with them all the things that are actually going on with you. You have a cordial relationship. God doesn't want you to be afraid to tell him what's really going on. God doesn't want to have merely a cordial relationship with you. He says, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. He wants us to feel open and willing to share everything. And you've got to understand that these prayers, like, like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will I, will I continue to suffer? Or, or prayers like Psalm 22, 
Why have you forsaken me? These are not expressions of a lack of faith or a failure of faith. They're actually expressions of true faith expressing itself in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship. Because what's happening is people are going through real hardship, they're going through real real difficulty, and they're actually turning towards God. They actually believe that God is able to help them, they just don't understand why he hasn't helped them yet. They actually believe God is able to resolve the situation. They just don't understand why he hasn't resolved it yet. They actually believe that God has the wisdom to do something good through the situation. They just don't understand why he hasn't done it yet. So when we bring our our, our laments to God, when we bring our burdens to God, it's actually one of the greatest expressions of faith that there is. It's not the denial of faith. It's a way we express faith as we endure real life on its own terms. And that's the universal experience of all believers. If you haven't come to a place where you can relate to Psalm 22 and Psalm 13 and Psalm 44 yet, as you continue to walk with God, you will. And when it happens, turn towards God. Bring your burdens to God. Don't be afraid to tell God to wake up. In Mark chapter 4, that's the next slide. It's a familiar story from your uh, Sunday school days, I'm sure. Remember, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go in a boat and sail across the sea. And his disciples have a boat. They're boatsmen, they're fishermen. They, They know what they're doing. And Jesus has told them to get in the boat. And Jesus is in the boat with them. And they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee when a furious squall comes up. And and the disciples are think, you know, these, these guys who are experienced seamen actually think they're going to die here. They think they're not going to make it. And all the time, what's happening? It says, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a kitchen, on a cushion, And they woke him and they said to him, Jesus, don't you care if we drowned? They had to wake Jesus up to help them in the midst of the storm. So it wasn't just the psalmist. This is the universal experience of the disciples of Christ. We'll have times when we've got to ask Jesus to be woken up. But as we go through these times, The second thing, the first point is sometimes we need to tell God to wake up. We need to ask God to wake up. Second thing is that we always need to remember that Jesus did wake up. Now, if you look through Psalm 44, one of the things you see is the psalmist is claiming and reviewing the fact that he's been faithful to God and that he's trusted God, that he's walked with God, and yet God has allowed him to to suffer. Look look at verse 4. He says, For you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. He's saying, you know, in everything we do, we're depending on you. Not in my own bow do I trust, nor can your nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes. Verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, we'll give thanks to your name forever. And then he says in verse 9, but you, God, have rejected us and disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. 
You've made us like sheep for slaughter. Verse 12, you sold your people for a trifle. You've made us the taunt of your neighbors. I mean, who does that sound like? To me, that sounds like the passion of Christ, being taunted by his neighbors, being sheep for slaughter, being having his belongings scattered among the nations and being discarded for a trifle. That's the life of Jesus. And yet, look at what it says here uh, in verse 17. He says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but I carry around enough guilt that when bad things happen to me, I just wonder which sin I'm being punished for. But the psalmist here is saying, these disasters are happening to us, and we've fulfilled your covenant. And we, we have not, we, we've remembered you. We've not been false to your covenant. And this goes back to the, the covenant idea from the book of Deuteronomy that when the people of God would obey, would obey God, he would bless them, and when they would disobey God, he would curse them and, and afflict them and make them suffer. And he's saying, look, God, we've kept the covenant, but you're not keeping it. We've obeyed you, and you're not blessing us the way your word says that you're going to bless us. And th- this is the frustration he has. And, and you know, I, I can't, can hardly bring myself to pray that prayer, but the one person who's ever lived who could pray that prayer was Jesus, right? He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, but completely without sin. He fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law in his life and in his person. And yet, at the end of his life, what did he pray? But, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you got to understand, especially from the perspective of the first century, you know, they were desperately waiting for a Messiah. The disciples of Jesus and the people of God were in the first century. But, One of the things they knew for sure, they weren't sure what that Messiah would look like or how he would operate, but one thing they knew for sure was that the Messiah would be glorious and victorious. There was no place in their understanding for a Messiah who would be crucified and rejected. A crucified Messiah for the people of Israel was absolutely a failed Messiah. So Jesus himself is the one who came and fulfilled the covenant, obeyed God and honored God, and yet something inexplicable happened to him, something that the disciples couldn't understand, something that the disciples couldn't accept, something that was completely outside of the disciples' understanding of what it was that God would do when he was rejected by the people, when he was betrayed by his friends, and when he was condemned by the civil courts, and when he was nailed to the cross. Nobody could understand that. Nobody could grasp how someone who was so powerful and so great would be so humiliated and would suffer and die like that. Remember, everybody said things to that effect. The thief, the the people watching said, he saved others, but why doesn't he save himself? And that was the question. And the answer was, we know the answer, The gospel tells us the answer. The reason he didn't save himself, the reason he was rejected, the reason he suffered, the reason he died is because a plan was unfolding that was far beyond anything that they could imagine. And Jesus wasn't just there to save the 
first century Jews from the Romans. He was there to save all of creation. But in order to do that, he had to die so that he could conquer death. The crucifixion was necessary because without the crucifixion, there could be no resurrection. So there was a plan going going on there that was utterly beyond their conception. That's what they didn't grasp. That's what they couldn't grasp at the time until it actually happened. Jesus didn't suffer and die because he was less than they expected. He suffered and died because he was more than they could imagine. He didn't suffer and die because he had failed. He suffered and died because he was about to succeed at a level that they couldn't conceive. And that's the heart of the gospel, right? That's what we understand about the way God works. Even when things are going wrong, it's not because God has failed us ultimately. It's because God is up to something better than we can imagine and better than we can conceive in the moment. But in this moment, it's our job to trust him. It's our job to believe in him. Jesus did wake up. Remember, he was on that boat with his disciples and they said, wake up. We need you to help bail out water. And what did he do? He didn't help bail water out of the boat. He calmed the sea and the storm instantly, right? Because he was greater than his disciples could imagine. And Jesus was laid in the grave, but he did wake up. Not so he could save the first century Jews from the first century Romans, from the Roman Empire, but he woke up so they could save all of humanity and all of creation from corruption and sin and death. So what this psalm reminds us of is sometimes you do need to tell God to wake up, and God wants you to express your faith sometimes by telling him to wake up. And we need to remember that it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus when he did wake up. And then finally, we need to live as those who are awake. It helps us understand what it means to be awake to the Christian life as it is in this world and and how how life works for us in this world. In John 15, when Jesus is getting ready to go, getting ready to be rejected, to suffer and die, he says to his disciples, remember the word I said to you, a servant is no greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Remember, Jesus was the one person who lived and fulfilled all righteousness, the one person who perfectly complied with the law of God the one person who deserved to experience blessings in this life and in eternity. But instead, as you know, he was despised and rejected. I don't know about you, but I I wanted to believe that if I became a pastor, that meant everything would work out perfectly with my plans for my life, my plans for my kids, and, and my plans for my career. And, you know, you, you think, well, if I make sacrifices in one area, I, God's going to make it up to me because I'm going to be blessed in another area. If I give sacrificially this year, that means next year I'm going to have an even better year, right? And if I'm committed to serving in this in this area, that means God is going to re- return to me blessings and honor in another area. And if I let these slights go or these difficulties go, that means ultimately everybody's going to see that I'm in the right and they're in the wrong, you know? I don't know if you think that way, but sometimes I find myself thinking that way, believing that if I do the right thing, God's going to, God, God's going to repay me in the moment or in the month or in the next year and everybody's going to see that, that I had good intentions. But that's not how it worked out for Jesus, right? 
He was perfect, and all it did was get him rejected. All it did was get him betrayed. All it did was get him crucified. And so as we go through life, we've got to understand that that's how God, how life is sometimes. As, as he says in verse 17, all this has come upon us, the complaint of the psalmist is, verse 17, although we have not forgotten you and we have not been false from your, to, to your presence. So the reality is, as we go through life, we want to, to experience the reality of God's presence. We want to experience God's God answering our prayers. We want to see God's people working together and getting along and, and everything going well. We want our plans, especially when they're godly plans, plans for, for to do good things. We want to see those plans succeed. You know, but... The life of Jesus shows us, the book of Psalms articulates the fact, and our experience will confirm that sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we have to endure injustice. Sometimes it seems like the reward for doing the right thing is all kinds of wrong things happen to us. That's just the way the world is. But it's through that that God reveals his grace it's through that that God builds our faith. 1 Peter 4.2 puts it this way, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering right now as if something strange was happening to you, but rejoice because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings just as Christ had to suffer, difficult things will happen in your life and you can rejoice when you suffer the, suffer those things because... Through that, you will be glad and rejoice, be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You know, there's no glory without suffering. There's no glory in your life without suffering. Glory comes from overcoming. Glory comes from facing the demons and, and triumphing over them. Glory comes from going through the hardship and succeeding on the other side. Glory comes from facing the enemy and defeating it. An army that never goes to war is an army that's never going to really be a experience glory. Glory comes when we go through the difficulty and come out on the other side. The glory of Christ, the victory of Christ, was a result of the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the defeat of Christ on the cross, because that's what set him up, that's what teed him up to rise again from the dead. Right? And it's the same in our lives. We've got to be awake to the fact that God uses difficulty, suffering, and God even uses his absence. God uses unanswered prayer sometimes to deepen our faith and to draw us closer to him. There was a, a Christian writer by the name of St. John of the Cross who wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. It's a, a little spiritual classic and where he talks about the importance of unanswered prayer in our life, the importance of trials and the absence of God in the Christian's life because that's what builds our faith. We go back to those disciples. They're on that boat. They're bailing it out. They think they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. And they're thinking, we're going to drown. And then Jesus gets up. He rebukes the, the wind. He says to the waves, peace be still. And they were still. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, where is your faith? Why did Jesus fall asleep on that boat trip? 
Why did God allow that storm to hit the disciples? You know why? So that their faith will go deeper. So that their faith could be stronger. So their faith could be built up. Why does Jesus allow you to face those storms that you go through? Why do you, you go through times when it seems that God has fallen asleep and he's non-responsive to your prayers and your petitions and, and unappreciative of your sacrifices and your commitment to him? Why does he allow that? So that your faith can get deeper and stronger and more powerful in ways that you can't even imagine. You know, the disciples wanted to wake Jesus up so that he could help them bail out the boat. But instead, Jesus gets up and ends the storm so they don't have to worry about the boat being bailed out. And at the same time, sometimes with us, we can't understand why God hasn't answered our little prayers. We want him to bail out our boats, but God wants to calm the storm once we wake him up. So God wants to drive us deeper in our faith. You know, it's interesting. Some of you might be familiar with Romans 8. Any, any of you think of Romans 8 as, as a passage maybe that you go to? In fact, I think it was read last week. But it's one of, it's, it's sort of the pinnacle of the spiritual, of the expressions of the spiritual and eternal blessings that God offers us through the gospel is Romans chapter 8. And one of the amazing things is at the very height of this, if this, the sort of the climax of Romans 8, there's this amazing passage. If you go to the next slide, uh, well, keep going. There it is. Romans 8. He says, he says this, and who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he says, as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 44, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. See, in Romans 8, he gets to the climax of really the, the spiritual blessings of the gospel, and he goes to the depths of despair in Psalm 44. See, see how that works? And he, he gets kind of the worst verse from Psalm 44. For your sake, we're being killed all day long. God has made us like sheep that are slaughtered. And he says, that's what we feel like. But actually, in reality, eternally, and ultimately, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what it means to be woken up to the work of Christ in our lives, when we feel like sheep that are being slaughtered, when we feel like we're being killed all day long, actually, in that and through that, we are more than conquerors. Because in the middle of that, in the midst of that, God's love remains true, his promise remains true, his power remains true, and it's incumbent on us to trust in him. But this isn't just an abstract demand that God makes of us, the life of Christ and the work of Christ show us that this is actually what God has done for us. This is why Jesus came. He came and walked on this earth. He came and lived a life meriting all the blessings of the covenant, and yet he was despised and rejected. He was became the Lamb of God who was slaughtered take away the sins of the world. Everybody thought that everything he did and everything he stood for was absolutely worthless. He entered into our suffering. 
He entered into our lament. He entered into our pain. He called out to God and said, God, if there be any other way, allow this cup to pass from me. And God did not answer his prayer. God said no. And then he was hung on the cross and everybody looked at him and mocked him and said, if you're the son of God, come down and save yourself. And then he called out from that place, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last. As you know, he was buried in the tomb and he laid there for three days. And then he woke up because God's plan for Jesus, God's plan for his life, God's plan for his work was greater than his disciples could imagine. It was greater than they could comprehend, even though Jesus over and over again said, I'm going to Jerusalem or I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'll rise from the dead. His disciples couldn't understand the glory of that plan. And in the same way, as you go through life and you have these ups and downs, God's word tells us that these are going to work out for good, that God has a greater plan, but that doesn't eliminate the pain and the fear and the anxiety and the struggle in the moment. But if we trust in him, if we believe in him, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the very last verse of Psalm 44 is this. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The Bible tells us God has risen up. He has come to our help. And when we find ourselves in those moments, and if you're not today, you might be tomorrow, remember, he has redeemed you for the sake of his steadfast love. He redeemed Jesus from his great humiliation, his great pain, his great loss, and he will redeem you in ways that you can't imagine right now if you'll simply trust in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up those who today are wondering why you haven't answered their prayers, wondering if you're actually going to help them or are doubting Doubt, doubting your plan, doubting your wisdom, doubting your strength, doubting your goodness. Pray that they would be comforted as we think about Christ entering into our suffering, entering into our dark night of the soul to redeem us from it. Make that real, we pray. Make that real to them, we pray. Through our risen Savior, amen.